Okay, so let's start with who you are. This is Tuan. He's a Vietnamese sailor. He pretty much just does labor on cargo ships for a large Chinese shipping company. Loading and unloading cargo, that's about it. I met Tuan through my buddy Tyson. Long story short, Tyson's a journalist based in Asia, and he makes regular trips through Vietnam. Tyson is actually helping us translate this interview. So let's just start with the morning. He says that they were told to sail to an island in the South China Sea. Tuan explained that he doesn't always get all the details for every sail. Sometimes he knows what the ship is hauling, and sometimes he doesn't. The company he works for, he explains, occasionally runs cargo for the Chinese government. And this particular run was one of those don't-ask-questions-and-you-get-your-check-don't-worry-about-it kind of deals. But he says he gets paid, so he doesn't worry about it. So they docked at the island and started to unload the ship. But he says something was wrong. Tuan and the other workers start unloading the cargo ship. And I mean, you can imagine it. All these forklifts and cranes and the machinery and the people. Just, it's just this organized chaos of all this stuff moving around. But Tuan and his buddies, they notice that something's off. He could see a large fence, very tall, bordering what seemed to be a large compound with big buildings. There's this large compound about half a mile from the dock. Big buildings, security gates, fences, cameras, everything. And while the ship was being unloaded, all these guards started to head towards the dock area. Tuan says they look like soldiers. As they unloaded, more and more soldiers came out to line the shore. Tuan explained that they kept unloading the cargo ship, and the soldiers just basically watched them. He was getting pretty nervous. All these guys with guns, and this was one of those jobs where you weren't allowed to ask questions, so he just kept to his work. And then there was this sound. Like thunder, or, or the clanging of really heavy machinery. And then there was this really loud alarm. He says when the alarm went off, the soldiers started yelling at them. They say to turn around and to not look up. The soldiers start harassing Tuan and the crew, basically telling them to keep their eyes down to not look up. I mean, why don't they want them to look up? That's weird, right? He says the ground got dark, like this big shadow was being cast. So Tuan decides to chance it. He, he looks over his shoulder to make sure he's not being watched too closely. And then, quickly, he looks up. He saw massive balloons that were larger than the cargo ship. And he says there were eight, and they were lifting a large, round metal object. And it was floating in the sky. Okay, this sounds... Nuts. Tuan sounds nuts. I mean, I'm listening to this guy tell me that there's these balloons that are the size of cargo ship that are lifting up this round object that's really massive, like small city massive. I mean, you should have seen my face on the Zoom call. And then he says, He says it's some sort of spaceship, like a Chinese spaceship. At this point, I'm convinced Tuan is messing with me, or maybe he's a bit crazy. But then Tyson says it's all over some dark web forum. About a week ago, there was some kind of intelligence leak, and there's all this chatter on some dark web forums and social media about this super secret Chinese space program and some revolutionary new space station they're building. There's the usual conspiracy crap, but people are talking about it, this massive spacecraft being built on some island off the coast of China. And the leak, it contained photos. 
Tuan told us that after he and the cargo ship left the island, there were a lot of rumors, and these pictures started to circulate. According to the reports, the thing Tuan saw was basically some kind of ark, a ship meant to house thousands of people, to save them if there was some kind of global catastrophe. This is crazy. The Chinese are building like a massive floating space city. So, so I had Tyson send me the onion links to the forums where these photos were leaked. So I started going through them, and there's satellite photos of this island, and there's drone images of this compound, and pictures of Chinese astronauts in their spacesuits basically on board this thing. There's, there's pictures of these cargo ships hauling these massive balloons. I mean, it's insane. You can see them for yourself. I downloaded them. I put the link in the show notes. You can go check them out right now. Honestly, I can't believe it. And frankly, neither should you. We totally just made it up. There is no secret island, no secret spaceship, no intelligent leaks or reports. The photos were created using AI. This entire plot was actually developed by ChatGPT. Tuan and Tyson don't exist. They're actually AI-generated voices. Everything you just heard, everything, was made using AI. And it only took us two hours. It's really the foundation of how conspiracy theories form. So, so, you know, you and me had a 10-minute phone call. We sent about 10 or 15 signal messages, and you took 30 minutes, uh, 20 to 30 minutes of research plus some, some minor editing. I mean, in less than an hour, we threw together basically a brand new conspiracy theory. I think maybe it was like 20 or 30 minutes, and I probably had um, 100 images, or, or give or take, that were pretty good. This is Cloak & Dagger, a podcast about OSINT, technology, and global conflict. I'm MJ Benias. podcast is powered by Sapper Labs Group. For more, visit www.sapperlabs.com. And then I will uh, narrow those down to sort of the, the best set to represent whatever the idea or the story is that I want to do. So I would say sort of maximum a half an hour, including probably our, our little bits of conversation, um, plus a little bit of research about... Um, you know, some, some relevant news stories. I looked up, like, what is what are sort of like the rumors about the, the Chinese um, space program, you know, like the kind of the next level stuff? Because I think if you're doing this kind of thing, it's going to be a good idea if you want it to be believable to have some outside references that you're, that you're pulling in um, because it gives you something sort of to hang your narrative structure on. This is my friend Tim. My name is Tim Boucher. I am an American, but I live in Quebec, outside of Quebec City, uh, Canada. We met when I was still writing for Vice. He and I got to talking a couple weeks ago, and I asked him if he would help me understand the process of creating disinformation. Tim is a bit of an expert, but not how you might think. Years back, he worked in trust and safety for a large social media platform. Content moderation, um, handling complaints... Uh, helping to write policy, things like this. So I've seen at scale, like the way that um, 
abuse happens, you know, both from just regular people who are just fighting about stuff all the way up to uh, things like, you know, Russian or Iranian state actors who are, you know, running organized campaigns on, on a platform. Tim still works in tech as a product manager for a distributed storage service that runs small data centers that can easily adapt to decentralized content. He's kind of always been a dabbler. NFTs, crypto, anything tech, really. And when ChatGPT came out, well, he found his new passion, the purposeful creation and dissemination of disinformation. But not to sow chaos and cause harm, but as art. Um, and I've always tried to do it in a non-harmful or hopefully low-harm framework. Um, and I try to do it in a more storytelling way, um, just in terms of like, let's say you have this narrative. Let's say you have this idea uh, that you don't just tell it through one account, you tell it through many accounts and you tell it through the interaction of the accounts where they become kind of like characters. So I, I've really worked a lot in this space of like adapting red teaming techniques to to just like more straightforward storytelling and into artistic stuff um, in a way that it's just fun for me because it's it, it gives me sort of like the technical exercise, but it also lets me uh, sort of run wild with the art and the storytelling stuff. I put out a bunch of books, especially that are kind of a combination of real and invented elements. Um, I think of them as hyper reality. There's this is a, a word from postmodernism that it's sort of this this idea of like a seamless blending of reality and fiction. Um, I'm also doing it kind of like as an exploration of the uncanny valley between AI generated stuff versus human stuff and sort of this um, unease that this space is, opens up, you know, like between being having a difficulty being able to discern which is which. So that's that's the area that I really like to play in. So what Tim is trying to say here is that basically he's an AI artist. He utilizes multiple AI tools to craft narratives and images, and he weaves them all together online to create fake events and worlds. You know, like I would try to go and, and duplicate the techniques that I saw people using, like the, the Internet Research Agency or other groups like that. and. I would try to figure out like, okay, let's say you want to buy a thousand Twitter accounts. How do you do it? How much does it cost? Who do you have to get it from? Um, you know, like what kind of cryptocurrencies does it, does it take? And then once you've got a thousand accounts, and I actually did this at one point, um, you know, what are the logistical challenges of trying to run a campaign? You know, like what does it take to keep a thousand different accounts straight, you know, just in terms of your login information or, um, if you have different ones that are running under a VPN, you know, like there's so many technical issues that come up that until you actually try to run the the attacks or try to simulate them, um, you'll never know all the ins and outs of those issues and, and those problems until you've actually done it. So Tim goes around and seeds the internet with his work. On Reddit, he created a fake narrative along with images of conservative Americans moving en masse to Russia. I did some ones of uh, Vladimir Putin as a hippie, you know, in the 1960s. He's created conspiracy theories about the AI robot takeover of humanity and about a mysterious land called Quatria and its covered up connections to Antarctica. 
He's created fake political videos using AI to make it seem as if Donald Trump was some kind of Pelican fanatic. This morning, an emboldened Trump put on a Pelican suit and joined a flock in Florida. 500 regional fish markets have shuttered their doors due to Trump's excessive fish consumption. Like, like he's in love with pelicans. Run by a surge of 80,000 pelicans following Trump's migration path. It's weird. He's even written 100 books using AI. A lot of times I'll use that, those techniques to, to talk about AI itself, you know, to tell stories about that are just kind of like pulp science fiction about AI taking over society, things like that. Tim purposefully keeps it light. I try to go in to a conspiracy and I sort of inject things that are silly, you know, that are less intentionally less believable because I think it's healthy to not always be so focused on all these dark things. So Tim goes out into the wide expanses of the internet and creates all these fake narratives and events. I kind of envision him as this heretical prophet who holds up a mirror to society. He kind of wanders in from, well, to borrow a postmodern philosophical term, the desert of the real. Disinformation is rampant, you can hear him yelling on some street corner. Look at your new world with fake news and artificial images. Look upon it and know the future is nigh. Whether you approve of Tim's art or not, it raises a big question concerning disinformation, OSINT, and intelligence. Um, what happens when someone like the, the Internet Research Agency or, you know, like some other group that has some kind of official standing within a, a country or even it could be a company or it could just be like a, a rogue group, you know, like um, what happens when they have a staff of 10 or they have a staff of 100 or they have, you know, a budget of a million or, or $10 million dollars? Yeah, I mean, Tim's stuff is really good, but he's just one guy with basically no budget. What happens when this technology is used to really generate some harmful stuff? So let's talk about, like, why this matters. Yeah, so, um, I mean, the first place for me that I would start is, is uh, you know, I've been doing AI um, images for, for a while now, since really August of last year, 2022, and... Um, I've used pretty much all of the different tools that are, that are out there, um, especially OpenAI's Dolly and Stable Diffusion and Midjourney. Um, I always had thought Midjourney looked too fake, that it looked like sort of fantasy art. And I think that's that's how they made their name. But with Midjourney version five, they crossed, crossed the threshold of, I think, believability in sort of realistic photographic images that um, for me, it, it kind of started to blow away all of the competition. You know, it's like head and shoulders above the quality that you can get from it. And you can make images that are extremely believable. There are obviously little tells that you can find in the images, but it's really with that version, version five, that I started to really take notice as like, this is a tool that goes above and beyond anything else out there. Now, this tech is still fairly new and it's far from perfect. AI-generated images and videos have flaws. I think one thing that's common across all AI-generated images is um, they have difficulty doing human hands. And this is one thing that Midjourney version 5 started to get better uh, than the others. You still see it. Sometimes you'll see sort of like six fingers or sort of this like mystery finger or mystery hand that shouldn't be in the there. Um, 
But when I'm generating images, you know, I always just take out the ones that have those obvious tells. So if you're if you're either like a red team person who's trying to sort of uh, exploit those systems for good, or if you're just someone who's doing disinformation or some kind of prank or something, it's easy enough to find, you know, out of 100 or 200 images that you generate, ones that do not have tells. Okay, so let's pause here and let me walk you through the process. As I was contemplating some angles for the show, Tim, out of the blue, sent me a message on Signal, showing off his latest creation. I then asked him, maybe we should use AI to create a new conspiracy theory, start to finish. So we began discussing what to do. We, we didn't want to do anything too real. So we needed something outlandish enough, but had enough presence within the social mind, something just far-fetched to a point, uh, but it could still kind of be real. Well, Chinese spy balloons were a hot topic a couple months ago, and China is building their own space station, so those were our anchors to reality. Russia is waving around its nuclear weapons like a kid who just found his dad's gun, so the threat of annihilation is very much on people's minds. So we started plugging these ideas into OpenAI's ChatGPT. And as we fed these various concepts into the AI, well, you can see how the Chinese space arc came into being. Taking our arc idea, Tim then fed this into ChatGPT and had it create a narrative plot. It, it came up with this idea about a secret island where this new arc was being built. It came up with a sailor on a cargo ship who ends up on the island and sees the secret spaceship taking off during a test. Meanwhile, Tim used a program called Midjourney to generate about 200 images related to our secret Chinese space program. Balloons, the ship, the island, astronauts, satellite imagery, drone imagery. He then applied some light touch editing to the best ones, and those are the ones you can see on our website. Okay, so with plot and images in hand, I turned to my producer Kennedy. We needed a script. 40 minutes later, we had our interview with Tuan and Tyson. We then used Google Translate to create Vietnamese text for Tuan, and I fed the Vietnamese text into an AI voice tool called Play.ht, and that created him. I then took the English translations for Tyson and fed that into the same AI voice tool, and there was Tyson. Using another AI-based editing software called Descript, I stitched it all together. It took roughly two hours total. Well, I think there's there are a few different le levels of potential audience in this kind of thing. I think, you know, you've identified sort of the special specialized audience of, you know, the OSINT investigators or law enforcement or human rights people. And all of those people are more sophisticated viewers. They have um, a better technique, probably better tools and workflow about how to do these kind of verification processes. Um, so I think those people are just gonna naturally be a, a bit more difficult to, to fool or to take in. But I think for disinformation campaigns on the internet, those are not necessarily the target audience. I'm sure the people who listened to this podcast didn't fall for it. You must have known something was up, something wasn't right. At least I hope so. Probably the target audience would be just the average person and then maybe secondarily um, media people, which there's a really big range of, of skills and interest and and knowledge uh, among media people and, and levels of professionalism where, you know, some people at, at a certain end of the spectrum, they might just take anything that sort of fits their, their agenda or their, their pattern of, you know, their messages and, and so forth. 
So they might find something that's questionable and they might just run with it, even if it looks kind of fake. And then that then they just want to get the clicks, you know. But I think the average person is the person who is the most easy to fool because, you know, let's face it, like most people are on their toilet or something using their cell phone. They're just doom scrolling for an hour or however long on the train, you know, like when it, whatever. And they're not looking carefully at each image that passes through their feed. They're just kind of like skimming. They're taking it all in and, you know, they may or may not believe it, but they might have some kind of reaction to it, whether emotionally or um, they might uh, be inspired to share it with someone else or to, to whatever. Exactly. And this is the key issue. Disinformation doesn't work so great on people who are hypercritical or have the tools and talents to scrutinize content. And it doesn't need to. So I think it's important to like to think about the, the reactions of, of sort of like each level within this, um, this set of audiences. And what I think is the really huge deal here is that if you think of how short of a time frame we did this, and we did this without really any automation, without any plan, without any budget, you know? Yeah. Now, imagine if we did have a large budget and a team of engineers and coders and image experts and writers. Imagine if we were state-sponsored. To do this kind of thing all day, every day, and they have uh, access to engineers and, and developers who can help them automate this process. Like one thing I've thought about with this is that um, if you could connect on, on one side, the social media listening tools, you know, like the, the, the tools that search for hashtags or, or for locations or whatever. Um, and then you just kind of like pull in all of the, like what's going on currently where data. And then from that, you sort of like, you, you pick the, the more viral or, or pre-viral ones and then you just hook that up to, let's say, an API. I know Midjourney, they don't have a public API yet, um, but other tools do. So then you could hook up your, your listening side with your production side and just basically automate this and then also have like, you know, uh, let's say you have like a thousand fake accounts or whatever on Twitter or some other social media sites. So you, have, you hook your listening, you hook your production, and you hook your distribution all together automated Wait, hold on. Let's 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 get this nailed down here. So, we have potentially an AI tool that's scraping web traffic and social media. And that tool is basically telling another AI tool to create narrative content, blog posts, social media captions, audio images and videos all around what it's scraping. And basically, having those systems generate content in real time, we can then have another AI tool that's distributing all that AI generated content and, and linking it to social media hashtags or accounts that are going viral in the moment. Holy crap. Um, and then you just have like a little bit of human oversight to kind of like pick out the best ones and, and, and do A-B testing of what works best and for which audiences and which ones are sticking, you know, with the, the, the effects and with the, the groups that you want. Um, so that's where it becomes really frightening. If you think about how this could happen in real time, and even if you didn't have any automation, even if you were just doing that manually, I think with probably two or three people who are skilled uh, in this kind of thing, you could you could cause like major chaos. By presenting alternative views of, of breaking news events that are happening live in real time. And because they're, they're so fresh and so uh, unreported, I think you could dupe a lot of um, reporters and media people into contacting you and being like, hey, where'd you get this image? You know, like, 
and then them trying to follow up and trying to verify. But in the process of trying to verify, it's going to sort of like validate these things that are that are fake. Even if, because a lot of, a lot of times, you know, you'll see like, okay, someone publishes a fact check and they say, no, these images that you're seeing are fake. But then if you're ideologically, politically oriented against that source that that is doing the fact checking, that just suddenly becomes proof that it's a cover up, you know, or, or a conspiracy. So it's a really tricky game and it's a really tricky thing for for journalists to not uh, accidentally amplify those kinds of things, especially as we start to see these um, AI generated image uh, attacks in real time. I haven't really heard of this happening kind of at the scale that I'm envisioning that it will, but I think it's just a matter of time as as people work out the tools and the processes. So as events occur from election outcomes to breaking news stories to natural disasters to various tragedies and calamities, people could spin immediate disinformation within the exact moment of something going viral. Counter narratives, counter facts, counter images, videos all start coming out. I think you, you kind of touched on a point of an event that you know is going to happen. Like imagine like the, the coronation in the UK, you know, like we have a date, we have a we have a, a schedule of where things are going to be at what time, you know, who's going to be there probably. So there's no reason that an attacker couldn't produce that all ahead of time, you know, a few days before, a week before. And it is all just so easy to do. I think there's there's the issue of like just the speed that with which this could happen it would become impossible for people to fact check or for OSINT investigators to sift through, you know, 10 million images or something uh, in a short period of time. Um, so I think the speed of production is going to vastly outstrip the speed of verification. And I think that's a huge deal. Exactly. In, in our case, Tim generated about 200 images in about 20 minutes. But our story had a lot of fanciful elements to it. Imagine if you just needed to make minor modifications to satellite images, or to cover up a war crime by, by, by tweaking video or image content, or, or to fearmonger a fake looming crisis. Suddenly, those stories and videos and images become much easier to create and seem believable. And if you don't have the skills or training to find the mistakes in the AI-generated content, it may as well be true. And, and these AI tools are only going to get more sophisticated with fewer mistakes, with fewer tells. Right. And there's another thing here. Um, there are some industry groups that are trying to work on standards around um, things like watermarks or metadata that get automatically inserted into generated media. But it's very early in that process. And the thing that I found was that okay, the metadata is there and you can go to their website and you verify it. But then I can just take the same image that I created there, open it in Photoshop, save it, save over the original version, and that metadata is gone. You know, So um, people are pinning their hopes on tools like this uh, for, for stamping the original uh, output of the, pro the programs, but they're so easily defeated right now that I don't think that that's going to be a first line of defense. It might be a second or a third or a fourth line down the road as those those things become more widely adopted. And secondarily, it's this issue of sophistication too, because like very few people know that these content credentials exist, this metadata exists, and very few people, few people know where to go to verify it. There are so many vectors of abuse and so many vectors of deception that I don't think that the metadata is the perfect solution. And also we've seen in the world of like, text plagiarism 
for things like OpenAI's uh, ChatGPT and other tools like that, where there are checkers that exist and, and even some that are put out by OpenAI. But the last time I saw the, the OpenAI text one, I think the, the advertised accuracy rate was something like 22%. Um, and then there's all these like false positives and false negatives that, it, you know, it tells you, oh, this is definitely made by AI. This is definitely made by human, but it's, it's just a guess. So I think there's a huge risk uh, where, you know, because of the scale issue, people are like, oh, well, we need to use AI to check other AI. But then it's like, well, we become stuck in this sort of like funhouse mirror world where like we're using AI to tell us which AI is lying and what's real. And it's like, do we really want that? You know, do we really want as a society to start offloading our truth telling to all these different layers of AI? It might be that we have to in some respects just because of the scale. But uh, I think we've got to be really super careful about that because there's just so there's, there's almost more risks to me in that than there is to the, the original problem. Right. So if the AI can find, produce and distribute content faster than humans can check it, we need AI to help the fact checkers, but then we rely on AI to essentially aid in the dictation of what is true versus what isn't. But then isn't that what the disinformation AIs are basically doing anyway, attempting to make quote unquote truth? And and to add on to that, I think we've kind of been talking about this this idea that like, you know, images have to be 100% perfectly believable in order to pass through the the mental filters of an audience. And I don't think that's really the case. I think oftentimes things can be very flawed, uh, very imperfect, very unbelievable, and they still are exciting. They still get shared. They still go viral because they fit into this, this thing of the narrative framework that um, meshes with you know, your own personal ideology or beliefs or just because you like it, you think it's funny, you know, so you, you share it. So I think that's that's absolutely probably the right place to start is like looking at these overarching narrative frameworks and looking at, um, you know, kind of the components of what's being drawn in. Because like I might create an image set that, uh, you know, it could be like 50-50 real images from real sources that are augmented with um, things that I've created or that I'm kind of like inserting into that narrative. And that's, I think, a trick that's... Uh, as old as as like propaganda techniques of, you know, you throw in a little spice A, a little spice B, and some things that actually exist, and then it suddenly you can you can get people to to swallow the whole package easily. It becomes, I think, a game of like tracing the framework of where did the narrative originate, where is it being shared? You know, is it being shared in a certain Discord group? Is it being shared in a Signal group, in a Telegram group, or whatever? Um, and what other kinds of things are they sharing? You know, like what are the neighborhoods of information or the sort of like ecosystems of information and narratives that they're working in? I can only imagine how this will all change in the next three years or five years. I mean, our little story at the top of this episode was pretty rudimentary. And in a year from now, as all of these different AI tools start merging into unified multimodal systems, creating this type of fake news will only become easier and just more efficient. Imagine one tool that can generate characters, voices, dialogue, images, videos, all with a few prompts and the click of a button. Imagine in a decade when augmented reality and virtual reality become as common as the flat screen TV sitting in your living room. There, there are different issues here, like 
media people talk about like oh we need more media literacy but you know what we need is 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 a whole new kind of media literacy because like if if our media literacy model is 10 or 20 or 40 years out of date um we need to be teaching people how these tools work and i think one of the ways is that is is showing people how they work and people trying them themselves to see how they work and then as you become a producer you start to become more trained and more skeptical and more like able visually to pick apart things so i think that's that's one approach and it, but it's unlikely that everyone in the world is going to is going to train themselves that way um another thing i've seen people say is like oh this is so bad because it means that people won't be able to believe anything they see and and to me that's okay i get it but on the other hand that's almost a positive because that's the level of skepticism that i think we're going to need uh in order to go forward this is the way that things are now we have to accept it and we have to try to make the small gains um and we have to try to build the the little tools that are going to help us i think i prefer sort of this approach of like let's build small utilities that can tell us specific things about an image and then once we have these the ability to like run these these images or whatever through a number of these different little tools we start to be able to piece together um sort of like a forensic trail or or, or what have you versus like I'm really skeptical of this approach of let's throw everything into an AI machine learning black box that it doesn't even know why it's giving us an answer and then suddenly we're relying on this answer and we don't even know the the origin of it you know so it's I I'm much more interested in like the small steps um I'm more I'm interested in in teaching people directly how the tools work um and I'm very pro skepticism you know <laughs> <laughs> I know none of none of those are none of those are a slam dunk answer, but I think there is none. I think we're just going to have to adapt and and use the things that we've already learned and just keep going because it's it's going to become more and more adaptation as we go. It's not going to stop, you know. Like this te this technology is not going to go away, and then suddenly things are going to go back to normal. You know, it's like this is a new this is the new normal now. But it isn't all doom and gloom. There are some silver linings. I think, you know, it's on the one hand, from one perspective, it's chaos. But if you look at it from the perspective, like of an artist, of a content creator, it's, it's, it's really sweet. You know, it's like, it's now suddenly I can produce like so much content. I can produce so many like amazing artistic artifacts that the problem is no more the generation. The problem is like putting it into a package that's interesting, exciting, that, that people want to buy or they want to share or whatever. So, you know. While I think it's important from the investigative blue team perspective, you know, I think it's also important to realize that, like, there are so many opportunities that get created and, and they're not all scary. Well, I hope there's still room for me on that Chinese space arc. Getting off world just seems like a good idea at this point. I want to thank Tim for appearing on today's episode. I've put the links to his work in the show notes. Remember to check out those AI-generated images of the space arc. Those links are in the show notes, too. Thank you to Kennedy Chapel, who helped produce this episode and who aided and abetted our little conspiracy theory. For more articles and news updates concerning intelligence and technology, head over to www.cloakanddagger.blog. You can also follow us on social media. Please subscribe to the show, give us a rating and review, let your friends know about the show, your mom and dad too. Heck, you might as well tell all of your AI smart devices as well. They're probably going to be our overlords soon enough. This is Cloak and Dagger. I'm MJ Benias. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>